Brethren, if you would, take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. And we're picking up in our study of this book in verse 42, and we'll make our way to the end of the chapter. As we approach this section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul has just preached a sermon at a place called Pisidian Antioch. As he preached there in the synagogue, we now hear kind of the aftermath of the sermon and how the Lord used what Paul said to touch the hearts of some and to arouse the hatred of others. Let me pray before we read the Word. Heavenly Father, we come thankful for the Scripture. And we thank You that it is Your tool, Your instrument of salvation. As You awaken us to Your mercies as the Word is proclaimed, and as You confirm mercies to us as the Word is proclaimed. Lord, would You now come draw near to us. Give us the understanding we need by the power of Your Spirit and touch our hearts with Your truth. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, Acts 14, verse 42. As they, that is Paul and Barnabas, went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles, when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thus far, God's word, and may he bless it to our hearts. Brethren, please be seated. In late October 1739, a Church of England minister landed on the Delaware shore, just happy to get off the boat. And with plans in hand to head to Philadelphia to preach the gospel, this minister, George Whitfield, was approached on the spot by the mayor of Lewistown, Delaware, begging Whitfield to preach. You see, news of God's work through Whitfield in London, Bristol, and among the coal miners at Kingswood, though there was no internet, no social media, it had already reached across the pond to America. When Whitfield had preached to the impoverished coal miners 
in the fields at Kingswood outside of Bristol in the UK, something remarkable had happened. The Spirit of God fell in great power and poor laborers were pierced with the word of truth. Whitfield had preached in the open air on a Saturday and it said that several thousand heard him. But the next day, a Sunday morning, the whole area was abuzz and estimates say there were 10,000 people who came to hear the Word of God. Whitfield preached for an hour with great power in a lively and loud voice that somehow everyone could hear. And while these people were known for their brutality, their rough living, and their pervasive wickedness, they were climbing the trees and filling the hedges to hear the gospel. Whitfield wrote of the moment when these miners were touched, how they were glad to hear of Jesus who is the friend of publicans. And He came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Whitfield writes, the first discovery of their being affected was to see the white gutters made by their tears running down plentifully their black cheeks from the soot in the mines. Hundreds and hundreds of them were soon brought under deep conviction and thorough conversion. Well, brother, news like this of the power of the Gospel through Whitfield when it spread everywhere, it's really no shock that the mayor in Delaware would stop Whitfield when he got off the boat and say, preach to us. And with the news spreading throughout America, a mere few days later, Whitfield preached on the courthouse steps in Philadelphia on a November evening. It was a cold night to some 6,000 people because the Spirit of God was moving. Well, that's the kind of excitement for the Gospel that we see here in our text in Pisidian Antioch. Paul had preached with power concerning the promises of God, the history of His grace, the need to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And if anyone doesn't fly to Jesus, he will face judgment. It's a repent or perish moment. And with that weighty word kind of hanging in the air and mercies made in Christ's name, Luke reports that there was a great longing to hear the Gospel again. And yet, amidst the joy produced by the Word, as was the case with Jesus' ministry, there's also jealousy. Joy and jealousy. And we're going to see three things as we make our way through the text. Note first with me, pleadings. Pleadings in verses 42 and 43. The moment Paul finished preaching, verse 42, as he and Barnabas went out, the people begged. That is, they were continually pleading that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. They wanted to hear it again. Immediately, there was a hunger in them to hear more. To have the promises that were focused on Jesus Christ, how they were fulfilled and understanding that He was the Savior. They wanted to learn more about it. Just imagine, it's hard for us to grasp this, but just imagine that you suddenly had the key that, un that opened the lock of the whole Old Testament. It's Jesus. That He's the snake crusher. That He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's the prophet like Moses. He's the righteous branch for David. He's Emmanuel. He's the Prince of Peace. All the prophets had spoken of Him, His suffering and His glory, His death and His third day resurrection. And these things were there as the Scriptures were read every Sabbath day in the synagogue, but only now are they seeing it. And they wanted more. Please repeat these promises to us. They're begging Paul to come back. 
But not only that. Verse 43, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts, these are Gentiles who've embraced Judaism in full, they followed Paul and Barnabas. Now, in Luke's Gospel, the verb to follow doesn't just mean to walk behind someone. It's a word used of commitment to the Lord. He, he uses it, Luke does, as the attachment of discipleship. And that's the intent here. Though some just wanted to hear the Word again, they were amazed by God's grace and they say, please tell us more. There are others with an even stronger interest, a passion, we might say, to commit themselves to Jesus. And they attached themselves or followed Paul and Barnabas immediately. With them, it wasn't enough to hear more about Jesus next week. They wanted to know Jesus now. They want to taste His grace today. They want to glory in God's forgiveness and abide with Christ right this moment. Now, brethren, that doesn't necessarily mean that the folks who want to hear more about Jesus next week aren't perhaps converted later. But Luke is stressing to us that this collection of Jews and Gentiles were awakened by the Spirit of God. They were redeemed, restored, and forgiven in Jesus in this moment. They heard the Gospel invitation that Paul extended that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall receive forgiveness of your sins. And they believed. They embraced the freedom offered in Christ right then. And that's crucial for us to note in view of the nature of the call of the Gospel. The Apostle Paul will write in a letter later saying, today is the day of salvation. The notion there is call upon the Lord while He is near. While He's touching your conscience and awakening you. While you're seeing your sin and the Savior is presented. Friends, there's no time to tarry. There's no need to put off a response to Jesus Christ. The Gospel is preached with authority and with urgency. Jesus is calling you to come and rest in Him. And don't let your conscience make you linger or hesitate. Don't entertain thoughts that you are okay and you might not need saving. Don't think for a moment that Jesus is requiring something of you other than seeing your need of Him as though you've got to offer works to make yourself acceptable. You don't. You could never find acceptability. Sin has spoiled everything that we are and everything that we do. You don't even need to get more information though there's certainly more to learn about our sin and Christ's holiness. What you need to know is you're a sinner before a holy God, worthy of the wrath of God. And yet God has given a Savior to save us from the wrath to come. That Savior is Jesus. Trust Him. Come to Him. Rest in Him. Because He brings peace to the soul right now. He gives the sinner freedom immediately and washes us clean. And that's exactly what the Jews and Gentiles here experience. They come to Christ. And with their hearts aglow now in the grace of God, they want to know more. Well, Paul and Barnabas received these folks. They had already encouraged them. But now they bring a very specific word of exhortation. Look at verse 43. As they spoke with these people... 
Paul and Barnabas urged them. That is, they were continually persuading, pressing, pleading with them to continue in the grace of God. Now this urging indicates that the group has already tasted the grace of God. Grace has come. They've been born again. They've been lavished with God's grace. And now they need to persevere by God's grace. I want you to notice something here that's easy to miss, but it's really important. The Christian life is one of grace upon grace. Grace awakens us, regenerates us, makes us alive with Christ, and then grace keeps us all along the way. By grace we have been saved, and by grace we are trained to carry on. I love how John Newton puts this in a number of his hymns actually, but in the the well-known one, perhaps you've heard this hymn before, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. But then Newton adds, "'Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come.'" Listen. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Do you see what he's saying? God's grace is what we need from start to finish. We need the Lord to do what He promised to do. That is, that He would take that good work He began in our heart. He opened our heart. He gave us the new birth. But then He would carry that work of grace to its completion. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen with His people. Jesus said, John... 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And yet, brethren, as Paul and Barnabas give this exhortation, I want you to notice they don't say, rest on your laurels in the grace of God. Let go and let God. That is not a verse in the Bible. Stop saying it. Don't say it at all. No, they put forth a responsibility. Continue in the grace of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it assumes that believers have a responsibility to live in the realm of God's grace. And there's a bit of mystery here, isn't there? Because if we do something to get grace, then grace isn't grace. It's an earned reward. To earn grace would be to nullify grace. So in a sense, what we're seeing is we're called to continue in the grace of God, but how does that actually work? Well, how did grace come to these people in the first place? God's grace met them in the Word. As the Word was preached to them, God's grace was lavished upon them. The Word proclaimed is a means of grace. And not only is the gospel preached the word of his grace, and not only is that the power of God unto salvation, Paul will tell us, 1 Corinthians 1, that it's by the word of the cross that we are being saved. We're being trained by grace as the word of God is put before us. God's word has everything you need for life and for godliness. So as the word is proclaimed, You're getting more grace. What Paul and Barnabas are saying is, 
Brethren, continue in the grace of God, which is to simply say, continue in the Word that gives you His grace. This is the means of your growth. Grace will be poured out upon you through the teaching. So attend to it. Or as Peter puts it really helpfully in 1 Peter chapter 2, see the Word like milk nourishing a newborn baby. Crave it so that you would grow up in salvation. If we have been saved, brethren, let us not neglect the responsibility to take more of God's Word in because this is God's grace coming to us. It's not automatic. You just don't grow as a believer if you read the Bible and you sit under preaching. You have to attend to it with faith and love. But that's what they're saying. Continue in the Word of His grace. Do we take that responsibility seriously? Treasuring the Gospel that imparts grace through faith to us? And then do we diligently attend to the message of salvation so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ? What is it, beloved, that will sink us on this pilgrim life as we plot on to heaven? We will make shipwreck of our faith if we neglect the Word of God. If we neglect the preaching of that Word, because this is God's means to teach, rebuke, correct, and train us for every good work that we're called to do. Pleadings. But then second we see persecution. We don't seem to start out with a persecuting climate here. It seems everybody wants to hear the Word. However, notice how we juxtapose excitement with this hatred that's going to arise. First, we see that excitement. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. What an incredible moment that is. Shouldn't that be what we want? Such excitement over the word that thousands of people come. It's like the Samaritan woman who runs to tell all the other Samaritans, come and hear someone who told me everything that I did. And they came to listen. Folks here were talking about Paul's powerful preaching about promises kept, about redemption accomplished, that there's forgiveness with the living God, and people flock to hear it. You understand, there's a principle here. We can't simply have, if you build it, they will come. That kind of mentality about the church. It's true if we have a building here, some people will show up. That may happen with a few. We have a pretty building, somebody may show up among us. What the hearers are doing, however, is conveying that they're captivated by the Word. They love Christ. They're glorying in the grace of Christ. They long to hear the preaching of Christ and they're so filled with joy that they invite others to hear it. Is that what we do? Do we tell everybody, come and hear the Bible unveil with clarity. Come and hear lively preaching that presses Christ to your soul. Come and hear an incredible message of God's grace that there's forgiveness for your sins in Jesus Christ to every sinner who seeks the Lord. That should be exciting to us. Are we going out with such a message? Brethren, that's how the church is growing. We gossip the Word that we've heard. Come and listen to Jesus. Well, as that happens here, and Luke doesn't explicitly say that a bunch of Gentiles came, but that seems to be the case. This is a Gentile region. No doubt the Jews in the synagogue wanted Gentiles to be converted. 
the Jewish or Gentile converts had just now started following Paul. So they want more converts, right? And then suddenly, this guy shows up in town and he preaches and everybody comes in droves to hear him. That's a great thing though, isn't it? If Paul is preaching and people are captivated by the Word, isn't it amazing that there's such an interest? Well, not so much to these Jews. Because their mindset is, I don't really want Paul to get the attention. In fact, notice in verse 45 how the Jews respond. They're not buying Paul's message. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. The jealous Jews turn the focus away from Paul's preaching of God's grace in Jesus to attack Paul. They just slander him. They, they speak against him as though he can't be trusted as an interpreter of the Bible. They can't refute Paul's biblical preaching. So they just engage in the classic ad hominem argument, which means against the man. They attack the man. Paul is focused on Christ. They're focused on Paul. How do we discredit him? It's exactly the pattern of the unbelievers attacking the Lord Jesus. Remember how this goes? They accuse Jesus of being a Sabbath breaker, a man with unclean associations, one who casts out demons by the devil. And though he refutes every argument they have, he shows their folly in every single interaction. They don't focus on the Scriptures. They call him a glutton and a drunkard and a lover of sinners and a blasphemer. They say he speaks truth one moment and they refuse to listen to the truth that he speaks. Even Pilate knows it's out of envy that the Jewish leadership hands Jesus over. They want the praise of the people. They want to be the top dogs. That's what's going on in this city. Paul, in one sermon, has shown the way these Jews in the synagogue had handled the Scripture was all wrong. They were blind. And if Paul is right, no one's going to listen to us anymore. But rather than humble themselves and acknowledge we've been wrong and then bow to Jesus, they just attack Paul. And the persecution starts by making it impossible for Paul to preach. The, The sense probably is, as they revile Paul, that they're shouting at him as he tries to instruct people. They're interrupting him. But then it gets even worse. Down in verse 49, As the word of the Lord is spreading, the Jews kick it up a notch. Verse 50, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing. These are Gentile ladies with influence in the city who seem to have influence in particular with the leading men of the city. See, they don't just slander Paul. They go to the highfalutin in the town. They're they're trying to take political action to get Paul kicked out. It's like the Jerusalem Jews using Pilate to get rid of Jesus. They can't overthrow Paul. They can't show that his arguments are wrong, but they're willing to get rid of him by any means necessary. Now, thankfully, at this point, there are no murderous plots against the apostle. That's coming, but that's not yet. But they're so hostile to the gospel that they want God's word silenced. Isn't it interesting how we keep seeing in the book of Acts great enthusiasm and passion for the Word and unbridled hatred at the Word. This is how the Gospel preaching goes, brethren. It's an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others. 
But I want you to see that this is a devilish tactic in particular. What had Satan been trying to do with the apostles in Jerusalem? To silence them, whether by threats or imprisonment or death. Now, nothing he did ultimately worked. However, many believers were forced to flee Jerusalem. Of course, they took the gospel with them and the gospel spreading. That will be something of what happens here. But these darkened Jews doing the works of the devil are trying to get Paul out of town. And in their efforts, they're going to succeed. Paul and Barnabas are going to move on to Iconium. But they leave a message before they go. Look at verse 51. They shook the dust off their feet. What does that mean? The rabbis of the day, when they returned from an unclean Gentile place, would ceremonially or symbolically shake the dust off their feet, i.e., shaking off the contamination of those dirty Gentile dogs. But for Paul and Barnabas to do this with Jews is to say, you Jews think you're clean, but you're rotten to the core. You are alienated from God. You're under the curse of God. This is a prophetic denunciation, one that Jesus Himself gave to the apostles back in Luke chapter 9. Because if the people refuse you, my messenger, who are they really refusing? They're refusing me. And what shall become of those who persecute gospel ministers and thereby attack Jesus Himself? They will be judged. They will be cut off from all blessing. The truth of God ultimately will be vindicated. Now, God doesn't command any gospel preacher today to get in the pulpit and take his shoe off and shake the dust off the feet. But the point still holds. If you reject Christ by rejecting Christ's messenger, you are stuck in your filth and only condemnation awaits. A fearful expectation of judgment. What a terrifying thing it is to oppose the gospel. But then finally, see with me, God's plan. After that initial Jewish resistance to Paul's preaching, Paul and Barnabas turn up the boldness. They don't back down. They don't act as if all is lost either. Rather, they lay out God's predetermined plan. Notice verse 46, they say to these hostile Jews, it was necessary. That's a, a word indicating divine necessity, as in God's plan. It was necessary that the Word of God be spoken first to you. This is God's established pattern of the Gospel, going to the Jew first and then to the Greek. The Jews had the Scriptures. The Jews are the ancient people of God. To them belong the covenants, the adoption of Son, the promises. They're right to hear the Messiah is going to come from the Jews. They're privileged. So they get the first go, we might say, at the Gospel. However, Paul says, verse 46, since you thrust it, the Gospel, aside, you just throw the Gospel away, repudiating it as worthless, and since you judge yourselves worthy, uh, sorry, unworthy, since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, note that interesting phrase there, you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Who's responsible for refusing life? You are. This is God's sovereign plan, but the blame for your sin belongs to you. 
Remember how Jesus once put this to Judas? The Son of Man shall go as it has been determined. The Father has planned what shall unfold with Jesus. And Paul's sermon just said that that's really everything. It's everything pertaining to His betrayal, trial, crucifixion, death, burial, and then resurrection. The Son of Man shall go as it has been determined. But woe to that one by whom He is betrayed. In other words, Judas, you are responsible for your sin. You can't look at God and say, you made me do it. Why did you make me this way? God does not cause anyone to sin. God is not the author of sin. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. Read James chapter 1. You engage in your evil out of your own evil desires. You reject the truth because you delight in unrighteousness. The same issue is coming up here in these Jewish leaders. It's actually what happened at Pentecost too, if you remember. Peter tells them that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God predestined the death of Christ, but you crucified Him and killed Him. You are guilty. Same situation here. You guys are heaping wrath upon yourselves. You won't come to Christ that you would have life. You're refusing Jesus. Jesus offers you freedom and you say, we aren't slaves. I don't need His salvation. And after that foolish, obstinate rejection of Christ, Paul says, your unbelief now opens up a door to to gospel mercy of the Gentiles. Behold, verse 46, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. As Paul turns to the Gentiles in view of the Jews' unbelief, this was God's plan all along. This is God's means to rescue Gentiles. And there's a prophecy quoted originally from the book of Isaiah, which was actually quoted with respect to to Jesus Himself. When Simeon in Luke 2 held baby Jesus in his arms, he quoted this passage saying that Jesus would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. But now Paul seems to apply it to himself. Paul, if Jesus is the light, why do you, why do you use the text to say you're the light? Well, who's representing Jesus to go to the ends of the earth? Jesus in his ministry had a very narrow geographical area where he ministered. But His witnesses go in His name to the ends of the earth. And as they carry His message in union with Christ, they shine with Christ's light. Do you understand what Paul's saying by this? Jesus is here among you in Pisidian Antioch through the Word that I declare. And the jealous Jews wouldn't have Jesus. But the Gentiles there in Pisidian Antioch, they want Him. They want His forgiveness and it comes to them. Why does it come to them? We'll note the next statement, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. They recognized this is not for anything in us. This is the plan of God. And they're glorifying God for His Word. They don't boast in their intellect or their wisdom or their superior religious thinking. They didn't have any superior religious thinking. They're a bunch of base pagans, ignorant of the Bible. And yet, as Hosea once put it, 
God's going to take a people who He called not My people and make them My people. The Lord is saving the unlikely. And then we read into verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now I want you to pay careful attention to how that is phrased. It does not say those who believed were appointed to eternal life. As though we choose the Lord and then He chooses us. We appoint ourselves and then God makes an appointment. That's not what it says. It says God appointed, the verb appointed is in the passive tense, which means action is done to you outside of you. God appointed these people and thus as a consequence of God's prior work, they believed. In fact, it was those appointed and only those, as many as God has appointed to eternal life, they were the ones who believed. This is a strong statement of the priority of grace, of election or predestination. And we have to reckon with what is said. I'm conscious of time, but I'm going to tell you the story anyway. Nearly 30 years ago, in a church in this town, I won't say what church it was, I was in a Bible study. We were reading this little section. I read this verse, and it like hit me like a two-by-four across the face. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I had a question about that. What does that mean? No kidding, this is what happened. I raised my hand. I'm in a Bible study with 40-something people. Surely somebody else has the question I have. I raised my hand and asked, what does that mean? This is what I got. I got no explanation because the truth was uncomfortable. How do these Gentiles believe? Because God appointed them. God set His love on them in Jesus. God awakened them. They were born again by God's power through the Spirit. They were blind, but God turned the lights on. God gave them a new heart. The praise then is to God's grace alone. And this word gets even more incredible. The sense of appointed here means to register or inscribe like you're enrolling on some type of role. God ordained these people to a certain classification. What was the classification? Revelation 21, their names were written or enrolled on the Lamb's book of life. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, God chose them. God predestinated them to be adopted as His sons. He chose them not for good in them. He chose them not because they were wise or noble or strong. He chose them to the praise of His glorious grace. For as Moses puts it, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It doesn't depend on man's will or man's exertion. It depends on God's mercy. Brethren, we're debtors to mercy alone. Now this doctrine of predestination, it causes people heartburn. People want to like scrub it out of their Bible. It shouldn't cause you heartburn. The history of God's grace has already been told us in Paul's sermon. You can go back later, look at the verbs starting in verse 17. God is the subject of every one of them. I made that point last week. But the first one you should really look at right now, verse 17. 
Paul says, the God of this people, Israel, did what? Chose our fathers, and then God made them great. Why do we have a problem with God choosing Abram in the middle of his 75-year idolatry, but then stumble over his appointing work here? What is Paul telling us? What's the point? Satan will come with vigor against the Gospel. Unbelief will arise against the Gospel. But nothing can stop God from saving His people. God has a chosen people. Those, not just of Jews, but of Jews and Gentiles. And He, the shepherd, is seeking and saving them. That is a point that produces not heartburn, but joy. Look at the Gentiles' response when they hear of God's grace. Verse 48, the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. Then in verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. God's grace that shatters our darkness should delight our souls. Look at what we were. We were dead, deluded in our sin. We were dominated by the devil. We were doomed to wrath. We had no way out but God. God intervened. God set His love on us and saved us. Are you amazed by grace? Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul talks about this doctrine at length, when he conveys it, he's in a mood. We usually have negative connotations with that phrase, right? He's in a mood. Yeah, he's in a mood. From verse 3 of Ephesians 1 to verse 14, there's one sentence. It's a run-on sentence. And Paul is praising and praising and praising and praising and praising. He's erupting with joy to the praise of God's glorious grace, to the praise of the grace of His glory, to the praise of God's glorious grace. That is how we should receive this doctrine. Doxology. Why are we yearning to know Christ and love Him when others are off pursuing their lusts? Why do we treasure the Gospel when others despise it? only because of the grace of God. We should stand in astonishment asking, why was I made to hear Your voice? Why has Jesus snatched me from my sin? It's not because of me. It's because of God's grace. Brethren, rejoice in that. God rescues His people, the people He has set apart for Himself. As the Gospel is proclaimed, And the devil can't stop it. Praise God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we come and stand in awe of Your amazing power, of Your wondrous grace. Lord, we do praise You as the God of stupendous grace and we pray that we would take delight in Your grace to us. Help us not to boast in ourselves in any way, but to cling to Christ the One crucified and raised for us. Lord, we pray that none here would harden their heart as the Word of Your grace goes in power. We would not abide in our sin, but rather flee it, seeing the destruction it warrants, and run to the only covering from Your wrath, the refuge that You have provided, Jesus as the Savior. Lord, move in the hearts of Your people and stir excitement over Your glorious Word. For we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.